This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. And I'm your host, Aggie DeBall, here for your Thursday. Metaki Mata, thank you for tuning in. Your company is much appreciated. Well, on today's show, how will China's ever growing influence really impact the Pacific? We hear from Cook Islands Prime Minister. PNG declares a 30 day state of emergency over ongoing fuel issues. And Pacific activists are feeling quite joyful over a delay of deep sea mining. For any of these stories, make sure you head to our website. In your search engine, just type ABC Pacific Beat and feel free to share across all your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, Pacific countries are fighting to protect their coral reefs on a shoestring budget in an effort to protect sources of food, income and culture. But with a looming El Nino raising fears of coral bleaching, experts say there's an urgent need for more funding. Marion Farr with this report. Timuki Sasiale never imagined she'd get involved in reef conservation. I work in a bank, counting and finance is my background. But three years ago... The young accountant was inspired to join an NGO called Fulingafu, which means new transformation. It aims to protect coral reefs in her home country, Tuvalu. The impacts of climate change, it it is real. (laughs) Um, For small islands like us, we we are facing uh, climate change and it has an impact on the way we live and it has impacted our culture as well. The small team of about 30 volunteers works on coral restoration and tree planting on two of Tuvalu's main islands. We have some medical students, we have accountants <laughs> with just diverse background of passionate youths coming together. Temuki Sasiale says it's challenging work on a shoestring budget and she's not alone. Experts say funding for reef management in the Pacific leaves much to be desired. Rahul Tikaram is a coastal marine specialist with the Pacific's peak environmental body, SPREP. Pacific Island countries, as you know, are small economies. And as such, in most cases, the budget for allocation to marine and uh, environmental work is uh, pretty much lagging behind than what is required. The Australian government has pledged $1 billion to manage the Great Barrier Reef until 2030. By comparison, the budget for Fiji's entire environment department is just $5 million over the next financial year. Capacity needs has always been there and continues to be a challenge for Pacific Island countries. So moving ahead, there's need for development assistance. It's something Fimoretti Sello understands all too well, working for Samoa's Environment Department. Alongside the government, Samoa has just one NGO managing nine coral restoration sites. We're very concerned because we have restoration projects going on, but it's not enough to tackle the effects that the El Nino will cause. The topic has been front of mind at a Pacific Reef Forum in Cairns this week. Dr Mark Reed, Director of Field Management Strategy with the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, says an El Nino increases the risk of coral bleaching. And that can mean that we'll actually have hotter, stiller conditions on the reef, so therefore the chances of having a marine heat wave um, can be increased. 
He says Pacific nations face additional challenges when it comes to protecting reefs. Remoteness and, and the size of some of the areas that they're looking after is really, really big. The five-day conference aims to increase collaboration between reef stewards in Australia and the Pacific. It includes a tour to Green Island, snorkelling on the Great Barrier Reef and time to take some happy snaps. The brilliance of bringing this group together is that we get to share our ideas, we get to share the challenges, we get to build solutions together. Tuvalu and volunteer Temuki Sasiale hopes it will pave the way to more support. If there's any other help out there for coral restoration for NGOs, local or national NGOs like us, um, it'd be very great to reach out. <laughs> And that is Tuvalon Reef volunteer Timukise Siale ending Marion Farr's report. Now, security has been the talk of the Pacific. Uh, with last week's visit by the French president and high-level U.S. diplomats focusing on the threat posed by China's growing influence in the region. But what do leaders in the Pacific want when it comes to security? For Cook Islands Prime Minister Mark Brown says any talk of security must also include things like economic security and climate change. Things, he says, that are central to the lives of ordinary Cook Islanders. We know there's a lot of geopolitical interest in our region. Uh, There is uh, jockeying, I guess, between the larger powers in terms of trying to get influence over Pacific Island countries. Uh, The one thing that many of these Uh, so-called superpowers need to understand is that each of our Pacific countries value their independent sovereignty. Uh, But we also value uh, the regionalism and the aspect of a collective and united Pacific front. Uh, For us, uh, as countries that are dispersed over close to 20% of the world's surface, um, having that regional strength and unity is is an important component uh, of maintaining regional stability. But it's also important to understand the individual um, sovereignty of countries and their ability to be able to engage with any other country in the world in order to advance each country's development agendas or their priorities, but also the regional priorities that we have. So it shouldn't come as any surprise uh, to many people that many of our countries have good, strong um, relationships, uh, diplomatic relationships with our traditional partners like New Zealand, Australia, the US and the UK, but also emerging uh, development partners like China, uh, like India, like Japan and countries from Asia. Uh, This is the changing geopolitical world that we live in and Pacific countries are well aware of the growing interest in our region uh, and will use that interest to our best advantage. Are these the same discussions that you're having with, um, you know, we've seen a huge increase in diplomatic visits across the region. you know, are these some of the discussions that you've been having with them around your national security policy? Yes, I think we've been pretty clear on in terms of that with all of the, um, mm. uh, the visiting dignitaries that have come into our country. Um, again, going back to uh, respecting and acknowledging our sovereign independence, our ability to develop good, strong relationships with partners who would like to help us achieve our development goals. That is at the forefront of our Uh, I guess, security concerns that we have. Um, It is, uh, I guess, something that for us uh, as a region, uh, this growing importance of our region, this acknowledgement of our region, uh, is something that um, leaders in the Pacific are now um, taking to heart. uh, And, 
using it, as I said, to further advance the development agenda, the development priorities that we have. And much of them is around lifting the levels of prosperity of our countries, improving the livelihoods of our people, but also protecting our islands against the impacts of climate change. Mark Brown there, Cook Islands Prime Minister, speaking to Johnson Rayella from the Pacific Television Show. And to note, for the full interview, you can tune into the Pacific Season 2, which will premiere on ABC Australia tonight at 7pm Papua New Guinea time, and will be available also on ABC Pacific's Facebook. Authorities in Papua New Guinea have declared a 30-day state of emergency due to a nationwide shutdown of fuel shortages by the Puma Energy Company. It's the latest development in an ongoing energy crisis that has plagued the nation and forced domestic flights to be grounded and power outages. Joining us for a deeper look at the story is PNG correspondent Tim Swanston, who's joining us this morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you, Tim, for joining us. Look... At, at the basis of everything, how did we get to the stage of continuous fuel issues in PNG? Yeah, look, it's a good question because it's quite complicated and really convoluted how PNG has sort of got to this stage. I guess ultimately what it really comes down to is the fact that Puma Energy is the main supplier of finished petroleum products in PNG. And as the Energy and Petroleum Minister has put it, is basically the monopoly fuel provider of airline and aviation fuel. So it means that when there's an issue with that supply or a purported issue with that supply, it basically can bring the country largely to a standstill. And we saw that with the flights being cancelled last week. Flights were also cancelled in December as well when Puma Energy said that it was in the position that it needed to ration its supply. Basically, this does, in effect, go back to 1997 when the country signed a contract with Interoil, who have now become Puma Energy, um, about a oil refinery. Basically, uh, the company set up an oil refinery in Papua New Guinea, which would have effectively then led to the main production of Papua New Guinea's fuel supply. But now what we're seeing, and as we'll talk about later, I imagine, is we're seeing a large disagreement between the central bank and Puma Energy, this very large supplier, which is now leading to the company saying that it doesn't have enough foreign exchange or foreign currency to conduct its business. And so it has then basically openly said to the market and to operators that it would need to ration its supply as a result of not being able to pay its invoices and a range of other things. And that has uh, led to these, you know, pretty dramatic uh, issues, both, uh, of course, uh, you know, for flights. And there's been some suggestion, you know, previously that they might need to ration at the Bowser as well. So uh, quite complicated, but something that's having real impacts for people there on the ground. You spoke there about, of course, uh, the Bank of uh, Papua New Guinea's involvement. Alongside that, though, even the BSP Financial Group Limited, we hear that they've actually cut ties with the biggest, of course, with Puma Energy. Why so? Mm. So two different banks to sort of keep in mind of as we have this conversation says the Central Bank, Bank of Papua New Guinea and BSP, which is, you know, a commercial bank. It's the largest bank in Papua New Guinea and the only bank that Puma Energy banks with in PNG. Now, it's made its own independent decision just in June to write to uh, Puma Energy and say that it was going to close down Puma Energy's accounts in September. Now, as to why they've done this, Puma Energy maintains that it's been just given very vague reasons as to why that's happened. BSP 
issued a statement, again, quite a vague statement in June about its decision to close its accounts. It said that it took a decision to cease its relationship with one of its customers. Um, it says that the reasons for those decisions have been made known to the central bank, BPNG, as well as their financial analyst, uh, analysis and supervision unit. Um, but effectively, it says that it has an obligation to strictly comply with all regulatory requirements. So quite a vague statement there that implies that it has something to do with the bank's regulatory requirements. We heard then from uh, the Energy and Petroleum Minister, Karinga Kua, that basically BPNG, ANZ, Westpac, BSB, all these banks, he says they're not happy with Puma's methodologies of transactions. So he didn't quite want to put a description on what exactly he thought was going on, but he said that the people at the banks that should be happy aren't happy, uh, the people that manage those transactions. So that really causes quite a drama when the only bank that is banking with Puma Energy has just said that it's going to close its accounts with Puma Energy. It effectively means that the, co the company can't operate in the country, which caused a very large panic that there would effectively be very limited fuel supply come that, uh, that decision of the, uh, of the bank closing the accounts. Well, you're listening into ABC Pacific Beat. Uh, we're speaking to PNG correspondent Tim Swanston on this ongoing energy crisis in PNG. Uh, What's also interesting is why PNG's Commission of Police, David Manning, how in the world did he get given authority to actually order the PNG Bank to sort out this sort of foreign currency issues uh, with uh, Puma Energy? Yeah, well, we saw this this development just in the last couple of weeks. I mean, clearly the government is very concerned about this situation. It does really appear that the central bank and Puma Energy are completely at loggerheads about the amount of foreign exchange that it needs to do its business. Puma Energy has said that it needs more, you know, it, it needs the central bank to basically authorise the foreign exchange orders that they have in so that it can import oil, um, whereas the central bank, we haven't really heard any public statements from them, um, but it effectively appears that the central bank has formed a view that um, that Puma doesn't need the kind of foreign exchange that it that it is asking for. Right. So you've got the two really at loggerheads. Clearly means the government is quite concerned. And then you have the police commissioner that comes in and issues a statement saying that he's effectively using the COVID powers um, to uh, to issue a directive to basically try and facilitate the foreign exchange from the central bank so that Puma Energy has supply so that there's no more rationing or even suggestions of rationing. So he used those National Pandemic Act uh, controls to, to issue that direction. Now, it was clearly unsuccessful because just only about a week after that, we've had the government issue their own state of emergency, uh, which is, you know, of course, what they're hoping will lead to some sort of change now. But pretty extraordinary to see that it gets to the level of involvement, firstly, of trying, you know, the police commissioner issuing that, and then secondly, now the government issuing this state of emergency. Yeah, Puma Energy obviously sounds like they do not seem phased by any of this, uh, and you've already alluded to the fact that the state of emergency might not be making a difference. But how has this crisis affected businesses and the general public? Well, the first thing is, um, as a result of the state of emergency, though, Bank, of, Bank South Pacific 
has agreed to extend out the deadline of closing Pure Energy's accounts. So they have said that, right, we were going to close Pure Energy's accounts in September. They've now agreed to an extension out through to March next year, which does take off some of the pressure here right now, which means that, you know, come September, it means that Puma is still able to bank um, in, in PNG, which means that, you know, largely disaster has been avoided both at the Bowser and for aviation fuel supply. Um, but the, of course, you know, th- there are some pretty wide ranging you know, um, uh, impacts. I mean, ultimately, when when there is concern about that kind of supply, it does really significantly impact business, you know, especially those flights being grounded. It's all, you know, people are talking about in PNG about that and whether that could happen again. You know, two times since December is a pretty serious thing for those flights to be temporarily halted. So there's some pretty serious impacts and people, of course, are understandably concerned when there is this major drama playing out over what is the country's sort of major fuel supplier, it does, of course, give people pause for thought as to what the current, you know, state of fuel supply is and how it will continue to last. Yeah, Tim, I'd like to know, were there no systems in place to possibly de-escalate, you know, disputes like this so that, of course, the livelihoods of people would not be so affected? Well, it's a good question, sort of how it's gotten to this point of a national emergency, because it's been no secret that the central bank and Puma have clearly had a significant disagreement for quite some time. You know, it did end up in courts uh, sort of towards the end of last year as well. So it's no secret that there's been an issue here. I guess the challenge here is just been that we're talking about the country's, you know, main aviation fuel supplier and a very large fuel supplier. So the fact that this dispute has gotten to this this extent, um, you know, has has then meant that we're we're talking about, you know, such a, you know the the largest supply, um, and any issues to do with that are of course going to cause basically a national crisis. So you know, I'm not quite sure as to exactly how closely the government were following this issue, um, and uh, you know whether or not they felt that they needed to act before. Um, but, you know, it is it is quite a concern um, that we're in this position as it is. The government's going to need to use this national emergency to basically, and it says that it's going to use it to effectively look at whether or not they can introduce competitors to the market um, because that's clearly their way of trying to navigate out of this crisis. If come March next year, Puma is going to be uh, have its accounts closed by BSP, well, then it's going to need an alternative fuel supplier to be supplying both aviation fuel and a large amount of the country. I was just going to say, has there been any uh, outside influence or any help that's been offered from any other country? Not as far as I know at this stage. I mean, the government's sort of early in its kind of roundtable talks and it looking, it's looking like it's setting together, you know, numerous kind of domestic groups to, to see how it can try and resolve itself out of the crisis. But uh, I'm not, I haven't exactly spoken to the minister if he's asked for any sort of assistance from other countries at this stage. I think the, the decision of Bank South Pacific to extend out that deadline of closing Puma's accounts through till March will probably give them some breathing room. Um, But certainly they are looking, of course, for international investors. They're looking for companies, um, you know, outside of their outside of the country um, to basically step up to the plate and see if there's, you know, any way that that there can be some other kind of fuel supply guaranteed um, and secured as well. So, um, you know, it's it's something that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll expect to see a lot more in this space over the coming months. And finally, just want to sort of really ask, I mean, what is the outcome? More so maybe what are you expecting? but what are both the company and the banks and the government expecting uh, to happen? Well, that's a good question because the minister has said 
as part of this emergency declaration, which was as part of as well of what we heard from Commissioner Manning as well, you know, that they want the central bank to continue in some way to supply foreign exchange to Puma Energy so that Puma Energy can continue to go about its business. And Puma has a very valid point as well in their responses to this, which it says, well, what you know, for us to continue fuel supply, um, it depends on entirely whether or not the central bank and authorised banks like BSP will be able to give us foreign exchange. Um, you know, the, the minister has flagged very serious fines for both parties if they don't go about, you know, to do this. But whether or not they will is just another question entirely. You know, these these roundtable talks are really just starting here, but it does seem very firmly that the the central bank has has formed a particular view in this in this matter. So, uh, as far as a way forward out of here, outside of you know the government trying to arrange and you know arrange other contracts with other suppliers and that kind of thing, I, I'm not entirely sure as to where to from here. To be honest, um, I think. It is a really a troubling issue, and and I don't quite know um, uh, exactly what what really is being proposed as a clear way out of here at the moment. All I know is that they do feel that they've got some breathing room uh, at this stage, and they don't feel that the situation is as dire as it was last week. Nice. Look, Tim, I really do appreciate your time this morning, and thank you for giving us a bit of an insight into the situation that's happening there in PNG. You're welcome. No worries. That is ABC's PNG correspondent, Tim Swanston. Love sport? Tune in to Can You Be More Pacific with Sarah Nangama and Dean Halatau. I am so, so happy that we've got the dub, but equally as excited to be back home. How was the wash-up? Were you uh, best on ground post-match? Oh, yes. I tell you what, I was really proud of the girls, and although I didn't play a minute on field, you can bet I played every minute off it. (laughs) Well well done, no doubt. (laughs) Can You Be More Pacific? Thursdays from 6 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. A new report by the French government is warning that New Caledonia's lucrative nickel industry could be on the verge of collapse if changes to the industry are not made. New Caledonia is one of the world's big producers of the precious commodity, which has only grown in value as manufacturers turn to the mineral to power the world's fleet of electric vehicles. According to New Caledonian political science researcher and historian Ismet Kurtovic, the report has painted a dire picture of the industry with the prospect of closures. Uh, the French government issued publicly the, the very important uh, report that the French minister ordered to the finance minister upon our three factory and uh, firm that export raw materials. And this report had been put on, on the web today or yesterday and it all, you've got all, all the issues that will be discussed between the politicians here in New Caledonia with the, the nickel firm, and that will be discussed in Paris in September. It's a very important report that certainly will interest uh, in Australia and mainly the new firm in Queensland that had uh, concluded raw material exportation from New New Caledonia for the new factory in the the, the former Queensland Nickel Company of Clive Robertson, you know? Yes, so we have have agreement with the new owners to export nickel for this factory. 
after that report specifically, I know th- this might mean that uh, the nickel uh, factories or nickel industry is maybe on the verge of, of, of collapse. So it is in the report. The planks, the condition for saving it are on the report and, and they also the condition of shutting down uh, one or two factories, mainly one. But we have to wait also with the Glencore. Glencore should should react too to say if they will continue to... Because, you know, Jan, the problem is that if you shut the factory, it costs you uh, a huge amount of money because you have to clear all the the place, you know. So you have to put trees where there was a factory. And here today, yesterday, the director of our nickel factory, SLN Eramet, says that now we have enough reports, we have to decide. So we are on the on the verge, like you said. On the verge of deciding what to do, what is the next move? Uh, of deciding what to do in order not to shut the factory. And France and Macron says he won't give money for an unproductive system of factory. From what he, I remember in the speech, he did say that he wanted a cleaner and a new system. Oh, yes, of course. But this is only one one issue and, and not the most important because the report says that even if the power is greener, the factories are not competitive. We, are, we, we have to do other things. Change the product and uh, we have to have a dual firm doing metal and exporting raw material. Both. Our, our factory is not competitive because wages very high. So if the firm wants to have cash, she had to export raw material, like you do in Australia. Yes, so this is the... The point. So now, the now the step is that what our politician and firm will discuss and decide, and second, what it will be bring for the discussion in Paris in September, and the government will move because we need uh, billions of euro to change the the power of the factory. But France don't want to give it if we don't change some elements that are in the report. And one have to not to forget that uh, Mr. Macron is a, is a financial man. You know? He's a man of economy. We have to change the the way of according permit to export raw material. He says it has to be free, free to export. Very important for Australia, excuse me. They says that we have to export min, uh, mine and metal, nickel metal, to Europe, Canada, and USA. 
And that is New Caledonian political science researcher and historian Ismet Kutovic speaking there to ABC's Jan Kahoot. Uh, stay with us on Pacific Beat because we will have a story about a different type of mining involving the ocean's floor. Uh, up next is our news wrap with uh, producer Evan Wasuka. When it comes to being connected, let's get Pacific. From across the seas and right around our region, ABC Australia is connecting you like never before with a new voice in news, politics, sports and events. From Fiji to Kiribati, PNG to French Polynesia, our trusted team of reporters bring you everything Pacific. Join me, Johnson Riala, because what matters to the Pacific matters to us. Watch The Pacific, Thursday nights, 7pm PNG time on ABC Australia. That's right. It's time to take a look at what's making news headlines across the Pacific region. So joining us this morning to help us voyage around the region is ABC producer Evan Wasuko. Welcome to the show. Good morning. <laughs> great great to be here. Thank you. Uh, look, we go first to uh, Melbourne. I know, look, we're experiencing a bit of warm weather, uh, which is unusual. But back in Tonga, it's a different story. There's even calls for more blankets. What's going on there? Yes, Aggie. Well, it's pretty fascinating. So the Matangi Tonga is reporting that... Uh, Tonga has been experiencing some really unusual cold weather with a temperature dropping to a low of 9.3 degrees just last Sunday. Now, that's the second lowest on record. Uh, previously, it got to 8.7 degrees in September uh, 1994. So the Tonga meteorology is saying that uh, this is partly because of El Nino, which uh, Tonga has declared an alert for. Uh, saying that there's a 70% chance that there, this might be an El Nino coming, there might be an El Nino coming up. Now the Met Office uh, says nights are usually cooler when uh, when you're heading towards uh, El Nino, and um, the other reason is there's also this subtropical ridge located between Tonga and New Zealand, which shifts during winter, and uh, this happens when the trade winds weaken, and when it's a clear and calm night, things do get a bit cooler. So um, because of the cooler and colder nights, Matangi Tonga is reporting there's also been calls for extra blankets at the prison and at the psychiatric hospital in Nugualofa. Now, the good news is that uh, these calls have been heard, and Princess Latufu Pekka has provided blankets to the prison, while the Red Cross is supplying uh, blankets to the psychiatric hospital. Now, again, it's just it's so cold that the market vendors at uh, Nukualofa Market have also been uh, adding multiple layers. Well, that's according to the uh, Matangi Tonga uh, report. Wow, thank you for that. Hey, look, I mean, while the temperature is dropping in Tonga, I believe the price of chicken is on the rise in Fiji, and it's ruffling the finance minister's their feathers. <laughs> That's right, Aggie. Um, so Fiji recently imposed an increase in value-added tax, VAT, uh, which came into effect at the start of August. Uh, now, this was one of the measures that the government of City Rambuka introduced in their recent budget. Uh, Fiji Village, uh, which is the news uh, online site, is reporting that the finance minister, Biman Prasad is really unhappy about that some traders have hiked up the price of chicken way over the accepted level, according to this new VAT. Um, so under, under this new VAT, the price of chicken should have increased by about 6%. But in the last couple of days, uh, customers have seen the price jump up as much as 30%. Uh, the finance minister says um, uh, not all traders are doing this, but those that are uh, unscrupulous and he's vowing a crackdown on this uh, price increase. 
The finance minister says that the poultry industry have assured him that the prices will be rectified and corrected uh, immediately. He reminded the industry stakeholders that government is already giving a lot of protection to the poultry industry and that there's a 42% tariff protection. Uh, So he's saying a price increase is unwarranted. Now, the Fiji Competition and Consumer Commission uh, say they've been receiving plenty of complaints and the, the price increase has actually come about from two of the largest poultry com- uh, companies in, in the country. Um, the head of the FCC says that the price range in, in the, the price increase of chicken should have been around 20 to $23. That should have been the new price, but he's seen it go as high as $33. So definitely a jump there in the price of chicken. Well, it sounds like a bit of a price war happening there in Fiji between the chicken producers and the government. Uh, but let's go to Solomon Islands. Uh, there's a new project funded by China to provide mobile network to the majority of the country's population has started. Yes. So we, we know that Australia provided a submarine cable between uh, to the Solomon Islands and to PNG as well. Uh, now we have this new project which is funded by the Chinese government. Uh, it's worth around 100 million Australian dollars and it's to build new mobile uh, telephone towers across the country. Under this project, um, 161 mobile phone towers will be built. Now, Solomon Business Magazine is reporting that the project has started with its first groundbreaking uh, in Guadalcanal province. Uh, so, Aggie, this project, uh, what will happen is it'll bring a network, so 3G and 4G network, to about 80% of the country's population, which is what the, the proposal is saying. Uh, this is quite a feat given how remote Solomon Islands is and how isolated communities are because it's quite widespread uh, across the country. Mm. Now, as part of the first phase of this project, um, they're expecting 25 towers to be built up and ready by November, which is when the Pacific Games start. So, um, yeah, lots of development there, uh, pretty ambitious, and just uh, I'm keen to see what happens with this project because I have family all around the country and there's very limited uh, connectivity. That sounds exciting. I am looking forward to the Pacific Games, though. Cool. What have we got here? Sorry. <laughs> Apologies. You go, Evan. <laughs> yes, well, uh, now that yeah, the Pacific Games are coming up. But, Aggie, also here you've been up early today because of the World Hip Hop Championships. Uh, what's what's the latest there? Yes, uh, I have to tell you, at 2 o'clock this morning, which is very early for most people, uh, we have the World Hip Hop Dance Championships that are happening. Now, the only exciting thing about that is that we only have one Pacific nation that is represented mm-hmm. at the World Hip Hop Champs, and that is uh, the squad called One. Squad from Papua New Guinea. Uh, they are part of the adult section. There is uh, six performers in this group. Uh, they are uh, guys alone, males. And let me tell you, for anyone who has been part of the hip hop world champs at any time, which I would gladly say my kids have been part of, so we've gone to this competition before, uh, you can just see amazing things happen. Now, this group themselves, the last time they performed was in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, they made it to the semis, but didn't get to further. Go, oh, sorry, go any further. Uh, but I saw them this morning, Evan, and I really feel like these guys are got probably going to do a lot better than they did. They have grown, and even the hosts themselves said, "It looks like you guys did your homework." To get there, how do you have to qualify, and how significant is it to get to that World uh, World World Cup World Champs? Yeah. So each country would possibly have their own local national competition, uh, but I believe. 
PNG, they only have the one squad and they have topped many Pacific nations. I think Tonga attempted to mm-hmm. be part of this competition, did not make it. So PNG have really been uh, quite outstanding. So that's it. You just have to do your local competition. If you win that, then you go on to represent your country. Mm. And yeah. how are they looking right now? Well, like I said, they were pretty much the third crew to perform this morning. Uh, they would have already finished, I think, by now. And so I am going to keep up to date and see whether or not they actually have progressed. So these were the preliminary um, section. And this just means you go on to semifinals. And then from semifinals, if you again make it, you go on to finals. And the finals will be this Saturday. Mm. Yeah. And I'm guessing you'll be keeping a close eye on that. Absolutely. Uh, only because my kids are hip-hop dancers. And so we have this special affinity with um, the Hip-Hop World Dance Championships. And we are trying to get them on the show? Yes, we are. So please uh, stay tuned because we will try and get them on uh, just to see how they've been going throughout the competition. So, yeah, so that's what's been happening. But I do appreciate that that was part of our news wrap. And I thank you for coming through this morning, uh, Evan. Thank you. Glad to be here. (laughs) No worries. This is Pacific Beat. Plans to start mining the ocean's seafloor, including the Pacific, have been put on hold for the second time after an international meeting in Jamaica failed to come to an agreement on how the industry should be regulated. Pacific activists have welcomed the delay, while mining companies say it's frustrating, but they expect mining to take place towards the end of next year. Gerard Barron is the CEO and chairman of deep-sea mining firm The Metals Company and is in partnership with the Nauru government to mine the ocean's seabed. Well, we had hopes that the the body would put in place the mining code by July 9. That was their obligation under the convention of the law of the sea. However, it was a big piece of work. It was a big ask. And obviously, COVID meant that they're off to a slow start. But what we've noticed is member states have been working diligently. There are more than 12 intercessional working groups. And the mining code is in good shape and is heading towards completion. But obviously, it means that we could, we do have the legal right to submit an application or a plan of work now. But in fact, today we announced that we won't submit a plan of work until after the July session next year. And that provides the body with three more um, meetings, one in November, one in February, March next year, and again in July. And we're hoping that will allow them to put in place the final mining code and allow us to submit our application once the mining code is in place. The metals company uh, must have been all set to go if the regulations were agreed to. It must be frustrating uh, having to wait until 2024 for the International Seabed Authority to reconvene. Have your investors started to get uh, shaky at all? Well, investors would like us to submit an application now. But the truth is, we told investors that we would be ready to submit an application in the second half. So we're still completing the uh, the, the application. It's a big volume of work. And so, but we read the room and realized that with everyone, or with the majority of nations at least, you know, working in good faith, that we would spend a little bit more time doing a couple of things. Uh, one is we, we planned to go out to the area where we'd been collecting our nodules last year. Um, that was going to be part of our environmental 
monitoring and management plan that we would do later, but we've decided to bring that forward. And we've also taken the opportunity with our partner, Allseas, to increase the production capacity of our first vessel, the Hidden Gem, um, to move it from being able to collect 1.3 million tonnes to 3 million tonnes per annum. So it's not all bad. And the prize is big, of course. It's a very large resource. We've identified around 1.6 billion tonnes of these nodules on two of our license areas, and they're very high in nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese. So it's frustrating, yes, but this is the first time that an asset that's deemed the common heritage of humankind has ever been developed in this fashion. And so it's not overly surprising that that they missed the deadline. And the main thing we wanted to see was good faith moving forward and progress. What does good industry regulation look like to you? Because I've got to say, there'd be people listening to this, uh, understanding the concept of strip mining the ocean floor and would probably feel that the regulations would rightly need to be very, very particular to avoid some of the uh, fallout from mining that's happened on, on land. A couple of things. Firstly, <clears throat> strip mining uh, conjures up images in your mind uh, of you know what we do on land. But this is a part of the planet that is very different. It's known as the abyssal zone. It's about more than 40% of the planet is categorized as abyssal. And it's about 4,000 meters below sea level. There is zero flora and so no plants at all. And the fauna is primarily bacteria living amongst the sediment. And in fact, if you measure the amount of uh, life there, the, the fauna, there's around 10 grams of biomass per square meter. And we're very fortunate that the resource, these nodules lie on the ocean floor. So it's not as though we go and rip up the seafloor. Our, our robots are able to collect these nodules from the ocean floor and minimize the impact. Now, we've been at this since 2011, and other contractors have been studying this area since the 1970s. And so the notion that we don't know much about it is wrong. We know a lot about it. And I think from our perspective, we want to see strong regulations. And But, but this is a resource, of course, that that feeds the tremendous growth in demand that we're going to see for battery metals to help with the decarbonization that's underway now. Yeah, actually and, on that, your company says that mining the sea floor will support the energy transition in a less environmentally damaging way than land-based mining. What evidence do you have to base that on? Well, we've conducted our own studies, of course. Our environmental plan uses uh, many of the world's leading science, university organizations who have been working as part of our um, plan over the last five years. And we've been gathering baseline data. Last year, we were out uh, collecting rocks for six months. And so whilst we were doing that, we had another vessel with around 80 people on it, many of them scientists, monitoring the impacts during the collection process, measuring the amount of sediment that was uh, disturbed and seeing how that behaved, and then staying behind afterwards and seeing what the impact was. So 
we've got our own studies, and then we've also conducted life cycle analyses and funded life cycle analyses by independent firms like Benchmark Minerals, which look at a whole range of impacts. Look at the impact of um, CO2 compared to land-based metals, looks at any impact on sequestered carbon, on freshwater systems, and all of the indicators point that we can massively compress the impacts uh, when we pick up these rocks and make battery metals compared to land-based alternatives. Yet a report published by the not-for-profit Planet Tracker says extracting minerals from the ocean floor could negatively impact biodiversity on a scale of up to 25 times greater than land-based mining. How, how do you respond to that? Well, that's a nonsense statement because let's let's look at the area that we're talking about. As I said before, it's the abyssal zone. Now, the main revenue in this resource is nickel, and 100% of the growth in nickel production is coming from rainforest nickel. You can just put it in your search engine and you'll see what the alternative is. To get to rainforest nickel, you have to remove the rainforest. Much of this growth is happening in Indonesia and in the Philippines and New Caledonia. And so the notion that you can compare the amount of biodiversity and biomass uh, in the abyssal zone compared to land-based is a, is a total folly. And, and still, and, uh, despite opposition to deep sea mining is mounting with more than 20 governments calling for a pause, why are so many governments against your industry? Well, I think what those 20, most of those 20 nations have said, what we'd like to see is more scientific evidence. And of course, it's com companies like us that have been now investing hundreds of millions of dollars to gather that evidence. And so I think it's partly because people have seen some of the devastation in some parts of the planet from land-based mining. And they're right to be cautious. We've moved ahead in a very cautious way ourselves. But what I can point to is that all of the scientific evidence that we're assembling will support the fact that this is the right thing to do and that the, a much better alternative. And that is Gerard Barron. Uh, he's the CEO of the Metals Company, speaking with ABC's Andy Park. Taking a look back at our top stories... While Australia will spend up to a billion on protecting the Great Barrier Reef, Pacific nations will be relying on volunteers in a shoestring budget to protect their oceans. Tuvalu's Temukisa Siale is among those volunteers. If there's any other help out there for coral restoration for NGOs, local or national NGOs like us, um, it'd be very great to reach out. And a 30-day state of emergency is in place as Papua New Guinea's energy crisis continues. But the ABC's PNG correspondent Tim Swanson says it's unclear whether it will help resolve the crises. And ultimately, when there is concern about that kind of supply, especially those flights being grounded, so there's some pretty serious impacts and people, of course, are understandably concerned. It does, of course, give people pause for thought as to what the current state of fuel supply is and how it will continue to last. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Remember, you can hear us again this afternoon at 3pm at PNG time. And tomorrow, though, uh, is our sports show with producer Carl Evans from 6am at PNG time.